And welcome to the third installment of MedEd Soundbites from the SAEM Education Committee. For those of you who have listened to episodes one and two, you know that we've based this podcast series on Dr. Rob Rogers' book, Practical Teaching in Emergency Medicine, edited by Amal Matu, Michael Winters, Joseph Martinez, and Terrence Mulligan. In this episode, we're going to do a deep dive into one of the harder topics we need to teach our learners, professionalism and communication. We'll discuss some of the recommendations for teaching these intangible skills and also address barriers to effective education for both teachers and students. My name is Dinah Wallen, and I'm an emergency physician at San Francisco General Hospital and the UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital, San Francisco. I'm also a big med ed nerd, and I love to teach. I'm joined today by an aspiring emergency physician, student Dr. Katherine Wiesendonger. Hello. Thanks, Dinah, for that introduction. As Dinah mentioned, my name is Katherine Wiesendonger. I'm a former ED scribe, and I'm a current fourth-year medical student at the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin, Ireland. Although I'm early in my medical career, I definitely have had the opportunity to observe various approaches to professionalism and communication, both when I worked as a scribe and throughout my clinical rotations as a medical student. Oh my gosh, I bet you have. I can't even imagine some of the stories scribes have to tell. Well, I'm so glad to be here with you today. I don't really need to sell the importance of this topic to our audience, but I will anyway. Professionalism and effective communication are absolutely critical to a career in emergency medicine, and yet we aren't really taught how to instill this knowledge in our learners. Fortunately, the book spells out multiple recommendations for the emergency medicine educator to teach these concepts at the bedside. The first makes a ton of sense. Provide motivation for professional behavior and improved communication. Right. So reminding ourselves of our specific and unique adult learner group, physician learners, who we discussed in episode one, we can more effectively engage our learners by helping them understand that by cultivating excellent communication skills now, they improve the care they deliver in the ED. Yes, they will be better doctors. The authors also recommend explicitly emphasizing the importance of clear, respectful, bi-directional communication with nurses, ED staff, and consultants. Goodness, yes. The sooner one learns to play nice in the sandbox, the happier they will be. Going along with that, the authors urge us to discuss the importance of acknowledging the good work of others. Yes, the ED in particular really embodies a team mentality. The whole emergency department organism won't function without each of its individual parts. And encouraging each team member to bring their best self really elevates the whole. An easy way to create this best self environment is to publicly applaud people on a job well done. When you're seen as a high performer by your peers, it's much easier to believe you're a high performer and behave accordingly. However, you all know this already. The key is, not only do we need to support and elevate our team members, we also need to teach our learners how to do the same thing. This is a skill that doesn't come naturally to everyone and may need to be overtly highlighted, emphasized even. I have a coworker. Let's call her Kim. I intentionally mentioned Kim's awesome ultrasound-guided IV start to the group during change of shift because this helps Kim and the team see her greatness and live up to this. Another recommendation is to promote openness to continual growth. And I love me some growth mindset. Yes, me too. We'll actually be covering lifelong learning and improvement in a future episode. So won't be focusing on this too much today. 
Suffice it to say that we as educators need to role model this behavior. Say something like, wow, I had no idea this study existed. I'm going to read this article when I get home and do something differently next time. Yes. And as a student, that would definitely inspire me to continue reading, even when I think I've achieved mastery of a certain topic. (laughs) Mastery. Yep. Well, another recommendation in the text is to clearly set expectations and establish standards surrounding the mission of emergency medicine. That is, we are a specialty for all people at all times for all problems. And until the learner really gets this, Any further efforts at teaching professionalism in the ED are out of reach. I hear that. Hard to cultivate a sense of professionalism without first understanding the profession. I'm in the midst of applying to emergency medicine residencies, and I will say it's super attractive when I see a residency program that just gets this. I know this idea that ED providers care for everyone at all times in any circumstance isn't new. It's embedded within the history and mission of the specialty. But whether or not this is valued at an institution really comes across when I talk to current faculty and residents and makes me reflect on the type of environment that will support the learner I want to be, one that's proficient in professionalism and communication. Yes. Well, Catherine, any residency would be lucky to have you. Thank you. But I really mean what I say. The mission of emergency medicine is very special. Now, getting back to teaching professionalism. Another recommendation is to observe, listen, evaluate, and offer feedback. That sounds familiar. Yeah. So these recommendations are universal for all of education. And we've talked about feedback already in episode one. This reminds us, though, that we can't just tell our learners what's professional or good communication. We have to actively observe them behaving in their native environment, then offer clear, specific feedback. The flip side of that, though, is that us learners will be observing you in your native environment, and we are looking to you to role model professionalism in words and actions. Absolutely. This can't be overemphasized. We are always being watched by patients and their families, by other members of the ED team, and by our learners. This can present a wonderful opportunity to demonstrate high-level skills at the bedside and blow a student's mind, or a moment to lose all of your credibility if a learner observes unprofessional behavior from the person who's supposed to be teaching them. I can certainly recall a few bummer moments, which really only helped me to define the type of doctor I didn't want to be, but I'm extremely lucky to have witnessed so many amazing physician, patient, and staff interactions while working as an AD scribe. I'll never forget a certain case, a tragic death that really rattled our ED. Despite the chaos in the resuscitation room and emotions running high, the emergency physician remained calm and collected as she helped orchestrate not only the resuscitation itself, but also communication with the family in real time. She involved the patient's parent at the bedside, keeping them informed every step of the way, and really allowed them to be a part of the care team. It was one of those aha moments that my scribe colleague and I had where we just looked at each other in the midst of it all and said, that's who we want to be one day. And so today we are lucky to have that very doctor with us as a guest host to talk about teaching professionalism and communication in the ED. Allow me to introduce Dr. Kristen Fontes. I had the pleasure of working with Dr. Fontes as a medical scribe at Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital, where she works as an emergency physician. 
Dr. Fontes also completed a fellowship in medical education at Stanford and is my go-to gal for anything med ed, toxicology, and EDI on med Twitter. Welcome, Dr. Fontes. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. And honestly, just knowing that you thought of me to speak on this topic is a big uplift. So thank you for that. I think it's so important that we take an intentional approach to learning and applying these skills in our specialty because the last 18 months have been a poignant reminder that our job is really tough and our ability to communicate and relate to other people has been challenged immensely. Throughout my career, I've learned that effective professional skill building absolutely helps me take care of patients, which is the most important thing, but it also has helped me maintain a sense of career satisfaction and just stay committed to this job for the long haul. Love to hear that. Well, let's just get into it, shall we? Dr. Fontes, as a med student, I'm only just beginning to form my professional identity and would love to hear about your experience as both a med student and resident in terms of solidifying these often called soft skills. What helped you and what didn't in terms of effective medical education on professionalism and communication? I've had some incredible teachers over the years. And what I found to be the most effective strategy were those times where I was directly observed by my teacher and even more so than being observed, being filmed and then observing myself on video afterward, reflecting on it out loud and then receiving feedback. We did this in med school with standardized patients to learn communication skills and then in residency in the sim lab to practice crisis resource management skills while taking care of a critically ill mannequin. There was so much that came out of those experiences down to things like picking up on body language and speech patterns that I was completely unaware of, then hearing from my teachers, my peers, and also myself about what I did well and what I could do better. To this day, I'm still reminded of how I used to cross my arms and lean against the counter in patient rooms, which was really more about managing my physical discomfort than anything else. And nowadays I have to make sure there is a stool in the room before I go in or I go grab one and roll it in with me because when I sit down and I'm on eye level with my patients, it creates a more natural conversational environment. And I don't feel the need to cross my arms because I'm more comfortable sitting with the patient rather than standing over them. And that's just what I found works for me. So seemingly little pieces of feedback like that have helped shape my professional development in a big way. I will also say that observing my teachers modeling skills and styles that I wanted to learn was also a very formative experience. One of my preceptors in med school was an exceptional listener, and he never interrupted his patients. He had this busy internal medicine clinic full of patients with complex issues, but he always let patients finish speaking before asking questions or discussing care plans. And the patients seemed so happy. I also had an attending in residency who would walk into every patient room in the ED and say very simply, tell me your story, and then wait for the patient to do just that. In the ED, it's hard to work efficiently and also give our patients the time they need to speak and be heard. But I find myself going back to that second year of med school and those years in residency and remembering how much I wanted to be just like those physicians. So I make it a point not to interrupt my patients whenever possible. Regarding what wasn't as helpful, you know, I'm a perpetual student and I love a good didactic, but there's a big difference between the passive knowledge transfer that happens in a classroom and the active learning that happens when we're engaged and immersed in the material in a protected setting. 
That being said, I still occasionally open the professional development packet my program director gave all the graduating residents in my program. It's a good refresher on what I was taught, even if it's just reading. As an attending these days, I don't have as many of those structured learning opportunities, but like Dinah mentioned, I'm still being observed by my patients, their families, my coworkers, and they will all give me feedback for better or for worse. So these skills are being tested regularly and will be tested for the rest of my career. Indeed, we are tested regularly for sure. Thank you so much, Dr. Fontes. What I'm hearing is as much as we educators may love to do chalk talks or give lectures or just pontificate on what we think learners must know, especially when it comes to teaching professionalism and communication, direct observation and feedback, whether you were the observer or the observee, were highly impactful for you and likely for many others as well. Exactly right. And really those experiences take place in a protected setting where, and I think this can't be emphasized enough, we can all make mistakes and then learn from them. So it just takes a bit of the pressure off too. (laughs) Gee, absolutely. I am so grateful to have made the mistakes I made in the sim lab during training and not for real. (laughs) So we've discussed effective methods of conveying this critical information through role modeling and through directly observing learners and offering them specific feedback on their behavior. Let's rewind a bit, though, and discuss how do we actually get learners on board in the first place? As we mentioned, the text emphasizes the importance of providing students with motivation for developing professionalism and effective communication skills. So what are some strategies you've seen employed to help learners understand how important this stuff is and what we expect them to be learning? One thing that really worked for me was being given a roadmap of sorts by my teachers, meaning they took the time to set expectations and measurable goals. So I knew from the start what I needed to accomplish. Some of the best attendings I had in residency would do that at the beginning of our shifts. And it really helped me focus on specific goals for that one day. And it eliminated any guesswork on my part as to what skill I should work on. What also really worked to help me stay motivated at the end of an exhausting 12, sometimes more than 12 hour shift was getting positive feedback and recognition. We put so much pressure on ourselves in medicine to perform flawlessly and at this consistent, exceptional level. And it's really easy to be hard on ourselves and focus on the things we don't excel at. But when one of my teachers or a patient or a coworker points out something I did well, it gives me this incredible energy to keep doing it. Just a couple of weeks ago, one of the ED techs I work with nominated me for an award at work. And on the form, she wrote that she saw me going the extra mile to make my patients feel heard and respected. And that small gesture has really boosted my motivation and my love for my job. And it also inspires me to pay it forward and give shout outs to other coworkers to keep that energy going. There is so much to be said about a positive work environment. And this is especially true when, as new learners, we're learning these somewhat intangible soft skills in an unfamiliar clinical environment. Dr. Fontes, it sounds like your teachers who really took the time to create roadmaps and expectations, review video footage with you, and provide concrete feedback were an integral part of your professionalism journey. They absolutely were. Sometimes I secretly even wish we still had that as community emergency physicians. I even remember some of the standardized patients from medical school, often professional actors who I 
think are much more emotionally intelligent than I am, would point out subtleties in my behavior and also share how what I did and what I said impacted them as my patient. (laughs) Wow. I wish I could have had that back in the day, or like you said, even now. Shifting gears to the more philosophical. As we mentioned earlier, the text highlights the importance of establishing standards for the practice of emergency medicine, which the authors describe as developing a mindset of unconditional positive regard for all patients. Causing a learner to develop an entire mindset is quite a heavy lift. I can see, however, that a cornerstone to behaving professionally in the ED is really understanding that we as emergency providers are eager and lucky to care for any person with any chief complaint at any time. How do you think educators can help their learners in the ED really get this critical concept? This is a great question. And to answer, I'm going to draw on what I've learned from witnessing the social uprising in the last year and trying to educate myself on how people experience healthcare based on their identity. You know, the emergency department is a challenging setting because we're charged with this task of building rapport with patients in a short amount of time and on what might be the worst day of their life. We're faced with tons of emotions, behaviors, coping strategies. And we're dealing with constant interruptions and other obstacles to keep the ED running smoothly. What I try to remind myself of nightly before work is that the patients I'm going to see are putting their trust in me to a point perhaps, and that they put their trust in me regardless of what their complaint is. And while that's a big responsibility, it's also an honor to be let in when someone is in such a vulnerable state. I think we in emergency medicine are uniquely artful in our ability to synthesize a diagnostic picture and a care plan from all these little data points we gather in a short amount of time. But at the end of the day, we are human. And like every other human, we harbor implicit bias. And that has the potential to affect the care we provide. Furthermore, we have to be honest with ourselves and realize that we don't know everything about our patients, about their lives, their struggles, their trauma. All we know is what we see and hear in front of us, and it takes a lot for someone to feel safe enough with us, strangers, to tell us their story. I also think that if our patient is a person of color, a woman, an LGBTQ plus person, someone with a disability, whether visible or invisible, someone who is unhoused, someone with limited English proficiency, or really anyone from a minoritized or marginalized group, we have to acknowledge that they experience inequity and mistreatment of some kind in their daily lives. Those are the patients we need to go the extra mile for to meet them where they are by taking the time to listen and coming up with a care plan that works for them. I've come to feel a sense of gratitude when someone like that trusts me with their health Because for many of those people, healthcare is a place where they have experienced discrimination. So now is the time to take the opportunity to model that unconditional positive regard in front of our learners so that they hopefully emulate us and become role models for the next generation. Thank you, Dr. Fontes. We have a pretty significant population of people experiencing homelessness and people suffering from mental illness and addiction in Santa Barbara. And as a scribe, I had the opportunity to work with dozens of different physicians who regularly saw these patients. 
you truly did treat these patients with unconditional positive regard, no matter the circumstances. I recognized this early on, and it really shaped my view of emergency medicine and helped define the physician I wanted to become. One final topic of discussion, when things aren't going well. The text describes three scenarios in which learners struggle with professionalism and communication skills. Number one, the willing learner who has difficulty grasping the concepts. Two, the willing learner who is emulating the wrong role models. And three, the unwilling learner who, for whatever reason, rejects the concepts. What strategies do you recommend for helping these learner types establish a sense of professionalism and improve their interpersonal skills? Thank you so much for that, Catherine. I think the first two cases where the learner is willing is where our energy is more naturally applied. Those are the learners we can sit down with and role play patient scenarios or observe them with real patients and give them specific feedback. Those are also the learners we can follow up with later and check on their progress. The unwilling learner is hard though. Truthfully, I think it's easy to let underperforming learners slip by under the radar and become someone else's problem later on. But for these learners, transparency and accountability are so critical. An unwilling learner is potentially dangerous to patients. So the onus really is on us, their teachers, to intervene immediately. I think taking a step back and speaking earnestly with these learners about their passion and their motivation to be in this profession and also their fears and their struggles may help us better understand what stands in their way of engaging with the educational process. I have certainly seen that work, especially when the teacher shares some of their own struggles as a way to relate to the learner, but we can only do so much. And a learner that stays unwilling despite our best efforts needs to understand that there will be consequences like not meeting milestones for graduation and needing to remediate, or perhaps difficulty getting or keeping a job later on. Yeah. We've all encountered similar learners and yeah, it feels terrible in the moment, but we're really doing them zero favors by trying to ignore their struggles and just punt them onto someone else. Well, that concludes our interview. Thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us, Dr. Fuentes. And Catherine, thank you also for hosting this session with me and for bringing Dr. Fontes on board. I learned so much about professionalism and communication today. So much. As a learner, my main takeaway is to contribute to that positive, uplifting work environment, to keep cheering on my colleagues and myself so that we're all motivated to be better, do better, and just keep learning. So true. And for me as a lifelong learner, but also as a teacher, remember that I'm being watched and behave accordingly the way I want to see my learners behave. I can also maximize my effectiveness and save myself time by directly observing learners communicating in the ED, then offering specific feedback. This might be how I get a shout out on a podcast years later. <laughs> Thank you so much to our listeners. This wraps up episode three of MedEd Soundbites. Thanks again to our guest host, Dr. Kristen Fontes. We'll meet again in episode four, in which Drs. Carmen Martinez and Caroline Mullins explore the meta concept of teaching how to teach with special guest host, Dr. Susan Promise. But for now, it's Dinah Wallen and Katherine Wiesendonger sounding off. Bye, everyone. Bye.